Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Tim Lott all about his brand new book, Yes, no, but wait, the one thing you need to know to write a novel. We talk about where he works and how actually it's a massive bore to him. Also, why he changed his routine quite early on after a big epiphany. And you can hear how he deals with a problem all writers worry about. But I think one of the things that all writers have to contend with is guilt. Especially if you're married and have children. I've got four children and I've been married twice. Um, you know, the sense that you're actually not doing anything very productive, while perhaps you can listen to your partner downstairs screaming at your annoying child or, you know, mowing the lawn while you're sitting staring out the window. It, it feels it feels bad, you know, it feels guilt um, inducing. And it's quite hard to convince yourself, you know, that you're doing something worthwhile and real and useful. Um, uh, so it did take me quite a long time to, as, as it were, let myself off the hook. You've got more with Tim Lott in a sec in a brand new writer's routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for listening. Let's quickly talk about that faffy back end of writing. All the other stuff that goes into it with notes, with your research piling up, not quite knowing where everything is, with pin boards, with post-it notes. Do you wish someone could take it away? I'm very excited that for a little while, Plotter are helping to power this show just like they can power your writing and deal with that faffy back end. They're supporting us for just a little while longer. Plotter is a writing tool that does what it says on the tin. It plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter and turbocharge your productivity. And this is what I mean by taking away the faff. When you open the software out, you get a digital corkboard and it's all there in front of you where you can easily swap between the timeline, the outline, your notes, your research, your details on the characters and places. You can tag everything to make it easier for you to skim through so you can simply find what you need quickly. All of it is colour coded too. So you might be in a notebook and if you're a very visual writer who likes to see everything that is going on wherever you want in the simplest possible way plotter is perfect for that you can track all the details of your plot at a scene by scene level switch swap use them however you like plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else and the best way for you to see what it does and how helpful it can be at stripping away that faff is by getting to go.plotter.com and taking a look around. For just a few more weeks, they are supporting the show and giving you the chance to get a little discount on their brilliant software. You can get 10% off with this show. To get the deal, to make the most of it while it's still around, use the link that is in the episode notes of this show. It could really be helpful to you and to all the faff. It's go.plotter.com slash routine. Let's get into it then with something slightly different, I think, in this week's writer's routine. Uh, we're chatting to Tim Lott. 
He's written 10 novels, which have won a whole bunch of awards, including the Whitbread First Novel Award. He's been shortlisted for the Guardian Kids Book Award and the Costa Award. He works as a screenwriter. He's been published in 16 countries. He's taught creative writing for over 10 years. He's got a brilliant Substack page filled with incredible writing tips and advice, which is well worth you having a look at, by the way. You can find it timlot.substack.com. And he's got a brand new writing guide out. It's called Yes, But No, But Wait, The One Thing you need to know to write a novel the reason this is a little bit different is because you might imagine and you'd be right i get pitched quite a lot of authors who have written guides to the craft who have seemingly got all the answers everything that you need to get your book down and well generally i've always said no because i don't really think they're interesting (laughs) i don't think that's the point of what we do we like to look inside an author's working day And general, sometimes, maybe I'm being a bit too cruel, uh, a lot of the writers, writing gurus that I get pushed haven't really written much themselves. So I don't know how useful it would be. But I thought with Tim's career, history, his awards, his devotion through the Substack to make you a better writer, I thought whilst weaving through his writing routine and where he does everything, we might get some tips from someone who's been there and done it and taught it a lot too. We talk about why plot really is everything, about the difference between screenwriters and novelists, also why a lot of what is taught in creative writing classes, Tim thinks, is actually unteachable. And we do get into it, though, as we always do, with what Tim Lott sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I live in uh, northwest London in, in Kensal Rise. I have a, uh, I, I live in a, a, a flat with big... Um, what would you call them? Picture windows that overlook um, overlook the London skyline. Um, I have bookshelves on my left and in front of me, and some pot plants and a picture of Rupert the bear being talked to by the wise old goat. A painting of it on the on the uh, on the bedroom wall uh, on the side of this side of the bedroom wall next to me, um, and a picture of BB King. Uh, and um, I sit in this armchair a battered velvet armchair that i always work from with my laptop on my lap um and i look out the window and uh yes i spend a lot of time staring out the window except for the time you know when i spend going to bed and sleeping um uh so that's 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 my writing surroundings it's very quiet it's very light it's very quiet when my daughter isn't here. She's staying with me at the moment. She's 16, um, and she comes and goes, but she's studying for her exams at the moment, so she's quite quiet too. Um, but that's really my working environment, both – both, and I do consider, funny enough, not only this armchair as my working environment, but um, the bed I can see from sitting this bed sh- in, into this, in this armchair. I spend a lot of time lying in there, and, you know, writing is not just when you're – hitting the keys with your fingers. It's also when you're dreaming and just generally goofing around in your head. And I I put great store in people just goofing around in their head, really. Is there anything productive around you for whatever novel or book that you're working on? I'm talking post-it notes, notebooks, whiteboards that might guide you in a direction for some sort of plan? No, I mean, everything that I need, I put on my computer. So all those things are valid, but they're simply the form, really. Um, you know, I do have the equivalent of a whiteboard, but it's on my computer. So, you know, if I'm planning out scenes and planning out um, character profiles, it's all going on my computer. So I don't really use, you know, either a, a board marker and a whiteboard. Though I do sometimes use them for teaching. Um, uh, and I don't really use a pen and paper either. Everything uh, is is on my laptop, basically. Um, yes. So no, I don't have I don't have tools, as it were. No. You're someone who, but what well, by teaching writing and by writing this this new book, yes, but not but wait, uh, seems to have perhaps analysed the way you write more than other authors do. Uh, how much of where you work is 
curated almost to give you the best chance of getting a good day i i can work anywhere i don't really care it's a matter of massive disinterest to me i can work in a like jk rowling working in a coffee shop i can work anywhere where it's reasonably quiet and i don't feel wedded to my space at all though if i was given a choice as I occasionally am and have the good fortune to, I go away and lock myself in a nice hotel in a room by myself for as long as possible uh, without any other input. Um, that's my kind of ideal situation, and that's that really focuses me. Um, as for, I don't know if you're, we're going, you're going to get onto the timetable of, of how I work. Well, it changes. Uh, I know that's not a very satisfactory answer for anybody, but it's changed a lot since I started out writing, which was quite a long time ago now. Um, when I started writing my first novel, White City Blue, I was very, very businesslike about it, and I mean that literally. Um, I would go and put on a suit, and I rented an office, and I sat in that office from 10 o'clock in the morning till 5 or 6 in the evening, and worked um, or tried to work. And that was me really trying to convince myself that all this sitting around and staring out the window was actually a job and, and not just a kind of extended metaphorical masturbation. You know, that I actually was doing something productive because it's very hard. One of the hardest things about being a writer is really to believe that you're doing something as opposed to doing nothing because a lot of the time it feels like you're doing nothing because you're sort of floating off into your thoughts and possibly not coming up with very many words that day. Um, and often, you know, the words you come up with aren't that good. Um, so it's, it's very challenging psychologically to keep going in those circumstances. And you need to convince yourself that you're doing something serious. And this is so something I, I will say to anybody starting to write or trying to write is take yourself seriously, you know, because it's very tempting just to think, oh, it's all a bit silly. I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, you know, I'm getting nowhere. You have to, if you're serious about it, and I don't know how serious a lot of people are. A lot of people just think it's a nice idea, um, but give up quite quickly when they realize how much struggle is involved in it. Um, you know, take yourself seriously. Uh, if, if, you, if you're working from home, lock the door so no one can come and ask you to do, do the washing up. Um, you know, and, and, and I think you have to be very structured about. Ha having said that, I very quickly realised when I was in this rented office um, uh, that I simply did not have a sort of eight-hour day in me uh, or anything like, actually. And I used, used to just get very angry with myself because I'd sit there hour after hour really not producing very much and becoming quite depressed at how little I could come up with in eight hours of time. So I read about people like Stephen King who, you know, bashes out thousands and thousands of words, 12, 15 hours a day. And... Uh, I just didn't have that in me. And, in fact, you know, actually this kind of accords with, I believe, general studies about work, which is most people don't have more than around three hours of proper work in them in a, in a working day. They get, you know, the rest of the time they spend goofing off or drinking coffee uh, or pretending to work. You know, and I think that's that, that there's a limited amount of concentration that you've got, or the, at least that I've got. Um, so although that experiment in a way was successful because I wrote the novel and it was published and it did well, um, you know, I, I later realized that I was in a sense being too hard on myself. And I do think you need to be in an odd way quite easy on yourself as a writer because um, there's, a, there's a lot of, you know, self-punishment involved in it quite often. You know, I'm not good enough, I'm not imaginative enough, I'm not working hard enough, I'm not producing enough words. Um, and, you know, and everyone else is going to be fairly sceptical anyway, if you, you know, as the famous quote goes, um, I think it was Peter Cook who said to, to someone who said to him, I'm writing a novel, and Peter Cook said, well, neither am I. 
you know, and uh, everybody's writing a bloody novel, supposedly. Um, but it's quite hard to be taken seriously. So you have to take yourself seriously. So anyway, having said that, at one point, I kind of realized that I only had two or three hours writing in me a day. Um, and, you know, I accepted that, I guess. Um, and I also worked out, and it's going to be different for every writer, how much writer, writing you have in you. Um, I, I worked out that uh, my peak hours, and a lot of writers get up early in the morning and write, but because they're close, I suppose, to their unconscious minds because they've just woken up. I can't do that. I'm a zombie until about midday. So um, I tried to work out where my peak hours were, and they were sometime around the afternoon, around th between 2 to 3 o'clock through till around 6 o'clock. Um, so I became someone who having, you know, and, and I, I do acknowledge that, I was fortunate enough to be able to do this um, because I had made enough money as a publisher to be, you know, quite um, – sorry, I was a magazine publisher before I was a writer. Only a little magazine, but it, it, it did all right and did enough to sort of keep me in sandwiches and rent. Um, and uh, I realized that, I, I, you know, I, I, I might as well do my admin in the mornings then I, knew, I, I had a very nice place that I could go for lunch. It's a very cheap place, very nice where I knew a lot of people. I'd go and have lunch there. And then I would uh, – and I've had this since I was a kid. I, I, I get very sleepy mid-afternoon, something to do with the fact that I suffer ADHD. ADHD, you get, your mind gets very tired very quickly. So, you know, I would – to this day – I, I have a nap around between two and three o'clock. So this all sounds very luxurious, but, you know, I'm just telling you what works for me. So I went and had lunch. Um, I then have a nap, and I'm a very good napper. You know, I can nap. I don't need to be set an alarm. I can lie down. I fall asleep. 30 minutes later, I wake up again, fully refreshed. And that's around 2.30, 3 o'clock. Um, and... I found that worked for me very, very well as, as, a, as a routine. It certainly wasn't punishing. And I made it even less punishing by, by um, I'm not a great believer in self-punishment. I, I made it even less self-punishing by breaking that three, the next, I decided I was going to do three hours and I broke that down into three 45-minute sections. So I wrote for 45 minutes, stopped for 10 minutes, had a cup of coffee or a biscuit, wrote for another 45 minutes, and so on. And that way I got my three hours um, completed. And I found out that, in fact, you know, you can get a lot of work done in three hours um, if you break it up like that. You're, well, you're working in very short spurts. But during those short spurts, you know, you're very productive, or I'm very productive. As I say, it's different for every writer. Um, so that is pretty much the routine I adopted and um, once I've got a book underway, at the moment I'm just playing with ideas rather than actually writing a book. I'm trying to find the right idea for a book. I'm waiting for one to sort of take hold of me, if you like. So I do, do a lot of just doofing about, scribbling on the backs of envelopes and, uh, and you know, the virtual equivalent, scribbling on a document about what, what might be a good story. And that happens at any time. I, I don't really organize that. But once I've decided I've got to get, you know, 80,000 words down on the page, once I've got a contract for that, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I would find it quite hard to work without a contract nowadays, um, then I would sit down and do my three hours every day, five days a week. I'd take the weekends off. And although it's only 15 hours in a 40-hour in a, in a in a, in a week, you know, writing is not done when you're writing, if you see what I mean. The, the whole Once you get into a book, you're writing all the time, in a sense, because your unconscious is always at it. Um, and the actual part of you that actually just sits down and writes is just the tip of the iceberg, uh, iceberg in, in many ways. But my tip of the iceberg happens sort of mid to late afternoon.
you can only push yourself so far. And I kind of realized what my limitations were, I think. Um, and, and, you know, you have to come at a book when you're, you're freshest because it's not an easy – for me, you know, again, it varies from writer to writer. Um, but it took – I mean, it took me a long time, I think. I don't know how long from those early office days to this much more relaxed style. But I think one of the things that all writers have to contend with is guilt, especially if you're married and have children. I've got four children and I've been married twice. Um, you know, the sense that you're actually not doing anything very productive while perhaps you can listen to your partner downstairs screaming at your annoying child or, you know, mowing the lawn while you're sitting staring out the window, it, it feels it feels bad, you know. It feels guilt-inducing. Um, and it's quite hard to convince yourself, you know, that you're doing something worthwhile and real and useful. Um, uh, so it did take me quite a long time to, as, as it were, let myself off the hook. Uh, I don't know if, you know, my, either of my wives, both ex-wives now, perhaps understandably, ever really understood what it is to be a writer, you know, because it, it, as David Mamet says, being a writer looks very much like goofing off. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not like you're going down a, a coal mine. You know, it, it's it's a very hit and miss process, and it does involve a lot sort of, you know, walking around parks and just doing something that in a way goes very much against the grain of the culture. You know, the culture is all about, setting goals and achieving them in a very organized way, very sort of, I suppose, left brain activity, whereas writing is very right brain activity. In other words, it's not about, you know, ABC. It's about finding connections, using your creative mind, using your imagination. And that's not what you would call an industrial process. It's not a, it's not necessarily, a, it's definitely not a mechanical process. So you can't force it, really. And I think, you know, for people who are used to the world of work, whereby, you know, you go into work and you've got a certain number of tasks to do and you do them and then you go home again and then someone gives you money for doing them, um, it's not like that at all. You know, it's the life of an artist. And an artist's life is very different, is very different from other lives, you know, in so many, in so many ways. Um, it's very ready to be misunderstood. It's very ready to be exploited. I mean, you know, plenty of people who aren't artists or musicians or of any significance still spend their lives convincing themselves they are um, because, you know, it's quite a good dos, really, um, you know, because you can just say, oh, I'm writing. But if you really are a writer, you have to face all that down and say, well, you know, you might think that I'm taking the mickey, um, but I don't care. I'm going to sit and write this book anyway. But, yes, I was definitely assailed by a lot of guilt and feelings of inadequacy and feelings of not being, you know, a, a, a breadwinner. Um, even though I did get paid well for my books, there was still always the sense that I was just um, playing or, or, or that other people thought I was just playing. Um, and yet writing is has a playful element to it, that's for sure. But as anybody who's tried to write will know, it's also very, very difficult. Talking about that guilt, you mentioned earlier uh, about perhaps when it comes to delete words. How, how do you and how, or how do you advise people to convince themselves that even though you've had to delete words and maybe you're writing words that you know will be deleted when you get to a second draft. How do you convince yourself that that's still been a good and productive day? Well, there comes a moment when you, and I, and I think quite early in any writer's career, um, and it's something when I'm teaching people on my Substack um, page, timlot.substack.com, or my mentoring, um, I try to uh, explain, write, I mean, it's a real cliche, but it's so true, 
is that writing is rewriting, you know, and, and I write, I don't know, anything up to 10 drafts of a novel. And the main, the main part of my job is throwing things away. The main part of my job is deleting things, throwing, constantly throwing stuff in the garbage. I mean, that's, that's uh, the idea that you just sit down and write a novel, I think, is, is massively misguided. Um, to write a novel, just as if you're doing any form of creative activity, involves a lot of missteps, a lot of mistakes, a lot of paths taken that are the wrong paths, which you have to go back and fix. But somehow, you know, out of that kind of chaos, you have to find your way forwards. And the way I do it, and I think most writers do it, is just by going at it again and again and again and again. And it's not you're just throwing stuff away, you're putting stuff in as well. But somehow you're finding your way through this forest, this forest of not knowing, um, you know, by by simply re redrafting. And that involves an awful lot of cutting. And, you know, I, I, I do come across this resistance from writers um, I teach that when I say to them, well, you know, this character doesn't work or you're going to have to, you know, or hasn't got any place in this story, they go, no, no, but I like that character. I say, well, yeah, you can, fine, you can like the character, but they, they don't fit into the story. There's not, there's no place for them. You know, they're not performing, they're not performing a function. Um, and and uh, every character and every beat of a plot in my book has got to have some kind of purpose for being there. Um, and so, you know, you're constantly cutting out the stuff that you think um, there's, there's a, there's a very good book, which I'm sure you've come across by George Saunders called a swim in the pond in the rain, um, which is largely about short stories actually, but it's, it's terribly good book. One of the few books by, written by novelists that I think is, is a really good introduction to how to write. Um, and he says, you know, you should imagine that you're in, um, you're in club novel and, and there are bouncers in there and they will come up to you and go, what are you doing here? And they'll be saying that to a sentence or a word or a scene. And you better have an answer or you're going to get thrown out. You know, and that's exactly what you need to be doing with your book. Eventually, you know, when it, when you start off, it's just like stick it all down there and hope for the best. I just I give myself absolute permission to write rubbish when I start. You know, it doesn't matter. I know that at the end of it, I'm going to have a novel. It's going to be a bad novel, but it will be a novel. And then I'm going to start making it a good novel. And that's the second draft, the third draft, the fourth draft. By the fifth draft, I'm probably down to – just, you know, tweaking. Um, but they, even that tweaking go on, can go on for quite a long time, several more drafts. But the real writing is done as much by removing stuff as by putting stuff in. And I think any writer really does have to have the courage and resolve to remove stuff, you know, that doesn't serve the story, shall we say. You mentioned a second ago uh, you're playing around with ideas at the moment, waiting for one to really jump out and grab you. Uh, when you are thinking through these different ideas that might be almost fighting for your attention, how much time will you give them? Well, I don't like to think about things in sort of actuarial ways. I don't know how much time I give them. Um I don't think about things in those terms. I give them as much time as it takes to accept or reject them. Uh, and um, you know what I'm what I'm really doing when I come up with an idea is 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 thinking, okay, that's an interesting conceit, maybe for a story, but uh, how's it going to turn into a plot? And I'm going to think to myself, okay, well, I can kind of see what happens in the first act. That's the easy bit. You know, when I got something surprising happening to somebody or the aliens land and, you know, try and take over the planet or whatever, it doesn't matter. That's the easy bit coming up with the sort of the first inciting incident. Then I've got to work out what is going to happen 
in the second act and the third act, only in a very rough way. But I've got to work out where this story is going. And I've got to have a kind of very grainy blueprint of, of, the, of the book before I properly start writing. And I, I must admit, this is something that I've developed as a technique since I started to write and teach about writing, because I understand the structure of stories so much better than I used to. When I started writing, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I just sat down and hoped for the best um, and bashed it out. And fortunately for me, um, I seem to have absorbed enough about storytelling on a kind of unconscious basis that I could make it work. Uh, but as any writer who's written a few books knows, the longer your career goes on, the sort of thinner the ideas become. And you, you sort of become more and more reliant on some of the, the storytelling techniques that are well established to help you through the, help you through the draft, I think. And I, I, certainly, I certainly do use that, that craft, if you like, which basically centers around character and plot. Um, to help me try and work out if a story idea is actually worthy of a novel, which, after all, is a, is a big, a big beast. Eighty thousand words usually mine. Mine can run from anything from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand words, and that's you know that's a lot of work. So I've got to have some rough signposts before I get going. You know, on on doing on filling in you know, filling in the huge gaps that I'm going to have after I've constructed some sort of grid in my mind of, of where the story is going to go. Just one last question on the day, when you've woken up from your nap, um, how easy do you find the process of kind of leaping into your story, getting straight back to where you were? Well, I'm always reluctant. I mean, you know, I'm, I'd much rather go and have a cup of tea and a biscuit uh, usually, um, but it has to be done. I mean, it's it's a bit like um, it's a bit like you know, and you know, athletes say it's you know when they're training, it's the the terrible terrible ten or the terrible twenty when they start off. That's the sort of hard bit. Once you're into it, it's okay. And, and I sort of feel that about writing. You know, once you've got your once you've got into your rhythm. It's okay. It's like jumping into a swimming pool and it's like not very nice an outdoor swimming pool and it's cold and you don't like it very much. But then, you know, you're, you get used to it and then you kind of, it's okay. It's all right. It's even enjoyable. Um, so, you know, but you have to get, you have to push through the initial resistance. And there's always a resistance because what you're pushing at is your unconscious mind. You're trying to get through to your own. That's where stories are written not in your head, but in your unconscious mind or your imagination. And you're kind of pushing at that door of your unconscious mind. And, and you're saying, let me in, give me something, you know. And your unconscious mind tends to resist that, you know. It doesn't give up its secrets very easily. Um, so it, you, you tend to get quite uncomfortable trying to get in there, trying to get in that door um, uh, for one reason or other, because there's lots of dark stuff in your unconscious and not everybody particularly likes going there. And extroverts never go there as far as I can make out, um, if they can avoid it. But introverts like me um, are obsessively drawn towards what's going on under the surface, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I don't find it easy, even uh, having had such a, having had such a, a sort of... Um, non-challenging day up until that point. I mean, another way of looking at it is that I'm lazy, you know, and to sort of actually sit down and, and write. Most writers are lazy, actually. Um, and and um, to actually sit down and, and write, is it takes quite an effort of will on my part. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's never easy. Um, but as I say, once you get going, it's, it's – it, can and is very enjoyable um but it's also sometimes absolutely bloody awful and uh you know you feel yourself getting nowhere and you your your words are sterile and, and dead on the page and all that sort of stuff um but then 
something opens up and you find yourself flying and uh that's a great feeling um so yeah it's i never i never look at i never look at the process with relish you know it's my job i mean not that many people love their job i mean actors and musicians do but writers i think have a much tougher time of it um you know so sometimes i don't want to do my job um but you you know i do it i do it because if i don't do it then I'm not sure that I have any particular purpose on this planet. So um, I keep bashing away. But I don't, um, I don't usually sit down at the laptop with a song in my heart. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We'll get back to it with more from Tim Lott in just a sec. Now, thank you so much for listening to the show. Uh, I just really appreciate the time that you spend with me every week or so and someone else wanging on about writing. Thank you so much for listening. We've had over a million downloads now, so I really, really uh, appreciate you still being there. Uh, If you want to do just a little bit more, though, you can support the show over on Patreon by pledging however much you like every month doesn't matter how little or please as grand every single penny of it goes an extraordinarily long way to helping us to helping me carry on doing this as often as I can chatting to some of the best authors around I love doing it I'd love to carry on doing it and you helping us just helps me keep carrying on and devoting the time that is needed to bring you this show for that you get merch there is bonus episodes there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show and I really appreciate anything I know the time are tricky if you would like to help us out become a backer pledge to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back to it then with tim lott chatting through his new book yes but no but wait the one thing you need to know to write a novel it's a writing guide from someone with years of not just writing experience but teaching writing experience it's filled with help and guides to take you from nothing to a novel In this part, we talk about why screenwriting helps novel writing, also why focusing on plot is so important, and we get back to it, talking about why he decided to write a writing guide in the first place. I wrote a different version of this book um, several years ago, which my agent didn't really think worked. Um, And my agent is usually right. Um, But it was a much longer and more involved examination of storytelling um, and uh, that, you might say, is how I started, by writing another book that my agent didn't like. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of – this is what I mean by sort of constantly bashing away and then throwing stuff away. So I, I then found myself a different agent, at least for this book. I still have the same agent Claire Alexander, Aiken Alexander, for my novels, and she's a wonderful agent. But she, to my, you know, Chagra, did not like my book on on um, on writing. Uh, she felt I think it was too over complicated and over long. I mean, 
the the great quote I think is is from George Bernard Shaw about writing short books. Is um, he wrote a letter to someone and, and said, "Oh, I, I'm sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter." And I think that's the key to all writing. Really, is learning how to say what you have to say as economically as you possibly can. That's the real challenge. And as you say, the the world of creative writing and and how to write a novel is vast, um, and it's much too vast as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think there's a kind of – well, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a racket, but I think there's there's an oversell, shall we say, of creative writing courses and lessons because they're trying to teach the entire canon – of writing techniques from style to voice to dialogue, um, you know, and, and, and a thousand other categories. Um, and I think it's much simpler than that in a, in a strange way um, because I think all these other things, uh, the things I've just mentioned among others, uh, you know, along with subtext and subplot and I could go on forever, um, is that they kind of distract from the central elements, the building blocks of a story. And I think I think that's partly because story itself or plots have become quite unfashionable in the literary world, at least. People tend not to worry about them too much. Um, Martin Amis, uh, that great writer, and he was a great writer who who, um, died a few days ago, uh, actually said, you know, that plots only matter in thrillers. Um, He didn't care about plots, neither did. And Tyler said something similar, and so did Edmund O'Brien. And, you know, it's it's a common trope. And it's, yeah, fair enough. You know, if you happen to be as good a prose stylist as Martin Amis, um, not many of us are. I'm certainly not. Um, uh, and I think too many people have been sort of thinking, oh, well, I can get away without too much plot or character so long as my words are elegant and clever enough. Uh, and the chances are you're not going to be able to get away with that. Um, the chances are you're going to have to you're going to have to rely on these time tested techniques. Um, the trouble is, because the creative writing industry has become so immense and, and spread-eagled, that the real central points of storytelling have got lost uh, in all the, in all the um, detail. Uh, I mean, I, I've got, um, I'm sitting next to my bookshelves here, which I've probably got 100 books on writing, and you'd be surprised how few of them actually, for instance, feature more than a few pages about plot. Well, I always thought stories were about plot, you know, and that's certainly what Aristotle thought when he, he was the first story theorist. theorist. Um, and it's certainly, what, um, it's certainly what TV and film writers think about, as well as character. Um, and I'll come to that in a second. But... You know, the actual structure of a story has become more and more downgraded, certainly in the literary world, less so in the genre world, or sort of thrillers and, and, and uh, such like, and romances perhaps. Um, but in literary fiction, or non-genre fiction as I prefer to think of it, which is what I write, um, I just write naturalistic fiction about everyday lives uh you know i think there are there's one thing that needs to be concentrated on and that one thing is actually two things that are so deeply connected you might as well call them one thing and that is uh why my book is called the one thing you need to know about storytelling and that one thing is plot and character i I say that as one word plot and character because plot is one side of character and character is one side of plot. And once I understood that, once I understood that plot and character were absolutely central to storytelling, in a sense I'd simplified the idea in my mind sufficiently uh, to write a book about it, I suppose. And, and, and that process 
came about largely because I didn't, not so much because of reading novels or reading what novelists had to say, but through reading dramatists. Um, drama writers, whether it's for the screen or stage, understand story much better than novelists do, as far as I can make out. So when I went to um, when I went to Robert McKee's lectures on storytelling, which he I think he stopped giving them now, but I, it was just a few years back. I was absolutely flabbergasted, you know, at the insights he was giving me about storytelling, because as a novelist you don't hear this stuff, and and McKee mainly writes, you know, is the Hollywood script guru, but his insights, as far as I was concerned, applied equally to novelists and i thought he was marvelous and I, he became a friend of, after a while um and i did a big interview with him for the the guardian and similarly i became friends with john york who wrote a book called into the woods um which was also about story structure he's a tv producer um and again he he was behind eastenders and shameless and has won several baftas and he understands very very well how stories work, um, as does my other, I suppose you would call them guru in this matter, Will Storr and his book, um, The Science of Storytelling. I got to know Will very well. Uh, and finally, David Mamet, another playwright, um, who is a brilliant writer on drama. And I thought, well, people are not using these techniques in novel writing. Um, and, you know, why not? I don't understand because they're just as applicable to novels as they are to films or plays or TV series. Uh, and um, I, 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 that's I kind of my, my campaign, I suppose, is because I love stories, but I, I, I find novels more and more difficult to read nowadays because I find they have lost touch with the, the fundamentals of storytelling. Um, they ask a lot of the reader, and I, I don't like to be asked that much. You know, I, like to be, I, like to be, I like to be dragged through a story by the scruff of my neck, you know, so I want to carry on reading all the time. And there are certain techniques... Uh, for doing that. And so this is a very long answer to your question. I wish I could have made it shorter. Um, but uh, the, the fact is, you know, once I understood that stories were really about this one thing, which is like a DNA strand, two inter, inter, interlinked, as it were, strands, the, the double helix, I call it. Once you get Once you get to the heart of those things, You've really learned all that you you can learn about writing a novel. That's not to say there isn't a lot more to writing a novel. There is, but there's only so much you can learn. You know, you can teach all you like. There's only so much you can learn. You can't really learn voice. You know, you either got a voice or you haven't. Um, it's not something you can learn. Dialogue, likewise, you kind of tend to have an ear for it or you haven't. You know, and that, that that's an unfortunate truth for people who want to write. Uh, novels. A lot of the stuff that's taught by creative writing courses and in universities and so forth, I think is actually not teachable. But character, but but dark, but character and plot is teachable. It's something you can explain to people and they can use it in their writing. And so at that level, to come a very long way around to answering your question, I be, came to write a book about how to write a novel after moving out of novel writing into screenwriting, which I did myself for a while, um, and by understanding through teaching people that that was what they struggled with most. The big question that most writers have that torments them is simply this, what happens next? And my mission, if you like, in writing this book was to help them with that. This is what might happen next because there are certain predetermined patterns in storytelling that you can use to to move your your story forward just expanding on the close connection between plot and character how they're one in the same dna that's kind of what you mentioned many authors i speak to will sit down and they will chart their plot 
uh, and and very thoroughly go through that before they even start. And they hope to discover the character along the way. How much in the book and when you're teaching do you advise people to uh, get to know the character quite well before you even start writing a sentence? Well, that's a, that's a very tough question. I mean, I tend to think that, that, that characters develop much more organically than plots do. So in other words, I think it's quite easy to write down a plot. Um, but a character is... It, so in other words, you design a plot, but a character is more grown, like, you know, tending a garden or something. Um, but... You know, to repeat myself, it's not as if it's um, that they're separate. I mean, you know, a plot is what a character does. Well, a character is what a character does affects the plot. What happens to a character affects the plot. What the plot exerts pressure on the character and it will make the character behave in a certain way. These two axes, what the character does and responds to, um, and you might say the external and the internal circumstances, you could think of, you know, a character-driven story as merely an internal plot. You know, it's, it's how the character is developing within. That's all we mean by character, and, and that's still a sort of plot. It's the beginning, middle, and end where they start off as a character and where they end up as a character. Um, so... You know, I, 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 I think that whole idea of coming up with a storyboarded plot that worries about characters later is probably something that will work well in, de- in a detective novel um, or something that, you know, for people who like doing crosswords. Um, for me, no. You know, I mean, for me, I've got – I sort of move back and forth between plot and character in a very organic way and see how each feeds the other. Um, and, and, you know, as I said before, this all happens at an unconscious level in many ways. Um, but I think it's a bit sterile to, as it were, too closely sketch out a plot in advance because then you are, you haven't, you're not giving yourself much room for manoeuvre. Um, and, and I think the other way of doing it, which is starting with a character and, and seeing what kind of plot emerges from them is, you know, a bit chaotic really for most people. So I take what you might call the middle course, which is to, you know, is to have an idea of a character, but only a general idea, have a general idea of a plot and then start writing and see what happens. Um, But I think trying to over define it uh, is going to cause you a lot of problems. It's likely to produce a, a sterile piece of work. is it for this week's episode of writer's routine thanks so much to tim lott that brand new book is yes but no but wait and it's out right now you can get loads more writing tips from him that maybe haven't made its way into the novel on his substack page have a look at that timlot.substack.com next week we're chatting to rebecca mccanna all about her fantastic new true crime novel do those things work out find out next week it's called don't forget the girl she'll be on to tell us more in the meantime you can support the show patreon.com forward slash writers routine you can drop us a follow on twitter too if you're still there at writers pod and you can send a note to the show use the contact page at writersroutine.com. and i will see you next week with rebecca mckenna until then bye (laughs) 